Bhutasa Bhagavato Rahato Samma Sambudhasa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Rahato Samma Sambudhasa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Rahato Samma Sambudhasa Buddhang Dhammang Sangang Namasami Talking a lot about uh, wisdom, wisdom faculty. These last few weeks, in the context of cultivation of the Dhamma, mm. and uh, so, because wisdom in English language generally means accumulated knowledge, so. Sometimes you you know you, you hear the word wisdom and you even though you know it, it doesn't mean that you kind of get that 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 reference. So it's difficult to see something like uh, mindfulness as a wisdom faculty. So it's not about accumulated knowledge, um, or say the knowledge of of the disappearance of the hindrances is not an intellectual experience. It's a, it's a realization. Or these kind of things. So, really, you, you, the, the three kinds of uh, knowledge. One way, that, one way that it's expressed is um, pariyati, patipati, and pativedi, which means the conceptual knowledge. It comes from study, learning, thinking, listening. Uh, actual the terminology and the un- that so one understands intellectually. Pati uh, pati, which means you know how to do it. So the know-how comes from practice, and pati uh, vedi, which means penetration or realization. That you really you know it. In other words, you're really fully aware of what that experience actually is. The if you like. Um, Knowledge, know-how, realization, or study, and practice, and fruition. These kind of things. These are the. These can all be seen as ways of of the, the word knowledge and wisdom. What it what it encompasses. So obviously, mindfulness is a is an aspect of know-how. And it's an aspect of 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 directly. Being aware of things, and it's something that has a certain conceptual basis too, in that it it tends to order things in terms of and this is a feeling, this is body, uh, and when it's governed by um, why it's systematic attention, it's got particular um, themes it's told to do. It comes from the manas, the intellect tells it. Go this way, do that. Then we'll practice this. Then we'll practice that. Those are definite conceptual terms. And if we do cultivate that particular know-how, mindfulness, then we find that there's that increasing sphere 
of awareness, of direct, direct experience of things, samadhi, um, becomes where where the conceptual um, experience starts to just fade away altogether. Once just get into direct realization with with know-how. So as you develop samadhi, you've got you're not thinking anymore. But you've got the results of having skillfully thought. You have the know-how. The know-how stays with you, which is much more kind of governing, directing, steering. Uh, and then the realization experience of knowledge is there. The fruitions. So then, then samadhi then is also can be seen as that which, which um, is governed and led. And results in wisdom when it's when it's coming from wisdom. It's based upon wisdom. It's based upon understanding. Based upon right view. Based upon mindfulness. Then it, it bears these things. It it gives these things their greatest fruit. So all this in fact, uh, <coughs> and these things are. Uh, Say it's about mind, and again, mind has is sometimes expressed in different ways. You have manas, which means your intellect, that which can think and organize things and and uh, bring up conceptual um, uh, data and dhammas. Can remember, access. Like a busy secretary, and then you have jitta, which is much more the mind, as say roughly speaking, though I'm not a psychotherapist, psychologist, but it seems that psyche is quite a good way to to look at jitta. It's that which experiences uh, moods, um, states, mm. feels things, sometimes irrational. It's not working in logical terms, it's momentary, it's spontaneous, it's often unplanned by the, by the intellect. It's often what we say we are when we begin to, to, to practice and cultivate. Then you say, you know, roughly what we are, we realize a body is something you can be aware of and, you know, you get more clear about what you feel yourself as being. And it's your jitta. Your jitta is that. The sensitivity and the psyche and it, the psychology, the various uh, mindsets, the attitudes, the the biases, the um, the patterns of psychological behaviour. This is what we seem to be and to be with, and to be uh, delighting in and oppressed by. This realm, the realm of the jitta, and the jitta. Is that which the Buddha in it, saying when when someone has cultivated the path fully, the jitta is freed, the asawa are finished. There is no more becoming this or that. All that had to be done has been done. So if you look at those those particular uh, phrases, and the de- deliverance of the jitta means it's no longer oppressed, burdened, worried, concerned, frustrated. It's finished with that. It's free from all that. Well, the asava, which is these are the this then this points to what the asava are the basic uh, corruptions and distortions that the jitta carries. The psychology is skewed. 
is based upon certain uh, fundamental distortions not seeing things lack of realisation distortion in terms of um, being something becoming something existing in time distortion in terms of somehow somehow imagining one is fed or one's psyche or one's heart or one's mind is actually fed by sense contact that this will, will, will nourish it or feed it or encourage it or reward it and it just doesn't just passes through and the unknowing of who we are the unknowing about this whole process so these are the, these are the asawan and this is finished and the Buddha, then there's no more being this or that so this the lack, the absence of rebirth the absence of birth and as you begin to look at all this gain you see that the birth is what this is the process of karma cause and effect of becoming of clinging so then while things are not finished then the jitta then is basically karmic it is it, is, it has a lot of karmic qualities it's conditioned it, it seeks birth it becomes this and becomes that it flickers it flitters here and thither through various states so if you like the, one of the fundamental qualities of jitta is its volitional quality it's, it's both um, experiencing volitional qualities that is it has uh, things that flitter through it are creative and created with memories that get us going you know there's things from the past that get us going there are particular habits that have volitional qualities that get us going we want to get going there's thirst there's an appetite there's hunger these you say the, the kind of perceptions and feet and then when sense contact occurs there's something we go for it or we resist it or we argue about it or we protect ourselves from it or we shut it down volition this volitional experience is, is, a, is a feature of the life of the jitta it's all about perception, feeling and then what these things do they are, they are moving and they get us going so the jitta is, is karmic in this way skillful karma, unskillful karma we get going and dwell in that realm and the jitta is karmic and it's also in its basic even apart from its content you see that the mind is always pointing to something it's going for something it's pointing at it intends it's got a kind of angle on things and this is less clear but the more you meditate the more you're able to actually work with the the content the jitta sankara as it's called so that it it is subdued or quietened or calmed or disbanded or one that's no longer affected you see that still jitta even when it's quite calm and empty still is pointing still is looking still is kind of motivated towards towards something or another so we could say that it is is a conditioned phenomenon itself 
And when the Buddha talked about um, the ending of karma, the ending of both of these, the ending of birth, then we recognize that, that just even on a conceptual level, the jitta that has been through that process can hardly be described in the same ways at all. When it has no particular, what is a mind like where it's not pointing anything? You know, you can't hardly conceive it because it's always going for something, isn't it? We can probably, through our experience, just begin to recognize that, yes, there are times when there's nothing much going on. It's calmer or emptier or brighter. But then what about when it's not going for anything? And to recognize that this too must stop. And then the, the words that are used to describe this are generally are few, but they're generally in terms of presence or consciousness, something that um, doesn't turn, doesn't incline, is not pressed down, is not driven forward. It doesn't stand upon anything. It doesn't fall through anything. It's it's limitless, unending, and uh, unbounded. There's no intention. So it gives you know like a kind of conceptual model of a of a process that uh, to be to be put into practice. And uh, though this seems a very tall order, then the Buddha's teaching is remarkable in the way that it it does break things up into discrete separative little bits that you tackle and each bit is actually like it's like a hologram every aspect in a way however humble or mundane is really a model of the, of the whole thing um, and the whole thing I mean, can be described as um, the practice path as viveka or non-attachment sense of being able to stand back, see things in perspective, um, see things, let things change, that kind of sensual, non-obsessive balance, viveka, so that we're not caught up. Um, Viraga, which means that not only we are able to kind of step back and observe and be an objective, but also that what's happening not only are we watching it, but also we're, we're quite cooled out about it. So, for example, one in meditation, one may very well be able to kind of recognize, look at the mind, but you think, my goodness, what a mess. When's it ever, you know, it's, there's a bit of, bit of non-attachment, but there's not much dispassion. One is still irritated by it, despairing by it, or fascinated by it. The, the viraga is the sense of dispassion where it's seen more no, like this. Mm. Mm. <laughs> so that, that you don't get that same reaction. Mm. Though internally and externally, these things to be cultivated. Uh, and uh, see, these are not uh, indifference by no means. But they do require uh, not indifference and shutting down, but they do require tremendous uh, acuteness in order to to stay balanced 
to not get caught up in some some projection of you. And this uh, third factor that's talked about is neuroda, means stopping. And this uh, refers to uh, sankhara or the volitional activities, karma formations. So this can be seen in depending on how what you're referring to, really. You say it's uh, the stopping of of unwholesomeness. Unskillful actions. Actually, that particular those impulses arise and they're stopped. They check they're not allowed to activate, and that stopping is 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 there. You know, they're not suppressed. They're just they they are they're actually seen stopped because they're seen as pointless. Mm. They're seen as as not accurate. They're, they can be stopped. Mm. So niroda can mean, uh, you know, we can see it on this kind of very simple level. Um, we can also see it in terms of the practice of meditation where successively particular activities of mind that seem to be normal and habitual actually can be stopped. Not through through aversion or through suppression, but just by basically um, no longer requiring it. The mind finding a new source of strength and vitality that actually means that the, those particular um, thinking processes, planning processes, discursive processes are no longer needed. We don't need all that kind of uh, hardware. The mind can actually steer by itself, attuned by itself, by the power of its own innate uh, awareness, mindfulness. So there can be the stopping of the thought function, which in this case is a wholesome thing. It's not like that that embarrassing moment on the telephone when you, you know, or that when you can't remember what you're supposed to say, or you know, it's a, it's not a kind of fear or kind of going numb. It's actually uh, link like stopping stopping of it, ceasing, because the mind that and that's very sick, that's something to be fully aware of when that as that occurs or when that occurs, because it's it it's a word that can bring up a lot of uh, assumptions about nihilism or annihilation or negativity. Mm. But this quality, or if you cultivate it deliberately through the process of something like anapanasati, mindfulness of breathing, you can see that it occurs through a, a development of such attention to an object, such keenness, such awareness to an object, that the, that the thinking process actually just clutters, it gets in the way. First of all, you may need that in order to, to decide what you're going to look at and to steer towards it, even give yourself some kind of labels to stick on it so you can actually recognize it. But then as your awareness becomes clearer, then these things, these labels just get in the way of a real um, contact experience with, with the meditation object. And the quality of that contact brightens to the point when the contact itself has got a kind of a holding power. The mind becomes vibrant so that it's actually 
enjoying it's held by the quality of of uh, of a kind of special uh, special sort of feeling of its own of its own um, energy brightness but then these other things are are stopped then yeah they are stopped through through being um, supplanted replaced in their function by more refined qualities so and this is so you get the art feeling behind this particular um, word which comes up quite a lot you see, you see something like the stopping of the new world of uh, stopping of consciousness sounds pretty deadly actually um, but, but <laughs> if we consider it to be that the consciousness is no longer having to act and do things and manifest things and bring up perceptions and feelings it's actually quietened down and we see it more like the way that the waves of the sea stop when the sea when the wind is no longer blowing then you get a much more uh, wholesome picture of it of, of of what this is about so one is with a sense of faith and uh, and actually to, to recognize what's going on because we all experience these things or may find ourselves experiencing these things and it's important to, to know so you can you 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 know where you are, where what you where you're going. Because the process of knowledge is one where all these three aspects of knowledge should support and encourage each other. If you don't have the conceptual knowledge, then it's a bit like you know a blind cat wandering around it. You know, somebody gets to the door eventually, but it has to generally fumble around, and it knows about doors, but it doesn't can't see it, so it has to fumble around and hit the wall, walk into the radiator, plunge around, and eventually gets out the door. Provided the door's open, of course, because it doesn't know that either. And so, having a bit of conceptual knowledge at least cuts out a lot of the of the f- just fumbling around to know what one should be attending to. And then what an experience actually is, and if because dependent upon that experience, one may, one adjusts one's practice. And of course, practice knowledge, knowing how to, is 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 vital. Because if we don't know how to, then the conceptual stuff just gets in the way, rattles around the brain, and you don't actually it doesn't do anything, it just clutters up, and can even be think that you know how because you know the ideas, one knows the ideas that uh, know how is actually that, that's what that is, that's that so now that means that, that we should be looking at that, I see and this is how you work between the two, the know how and the realisations, which are the recognition that the know how actually does have results, which can be seen and described so that this is the what the benefit of Dhamma having a Dhamma teacher like the Buddha and the the force in these particular things I just bring up for consideration is a factor called Votsaga which means something like complete relinquishment 
sometimes it's seen as self-relinquishment or utter abandonment. This this has got this quality to it. So it's um, something like a giving up or release experience. And uh, when we look at that on a fairly humble basis, then we can see that if we have a particular desire or obsession in the mind that we actually step back from, see what it is, come to a balanced understanding of it, are able through that balanced understanding, through that dispassion to see where it's coming from and stop it, then there can be also a relinquishment of the basis of that obsession. You know, the stopping acts as a prerequisite to actually say, yes, it does stop. And then once once it's seen something stop, then you begin to see where it came from. If it stops, you think, oh. You actually get enough clarity to see the causes for its arising because the causes for its stopping are the mirror image of the causes for its arising. Mm. So when one, is, one has, the, the, say, the confidence in Dhamma, in seeing how, say, a, a fear stops, and you, as it stops, you, you get the realisation of, well, that was based upon may not even be conceptual but a recognition this is based upon some kind of aspect of assumption about what I am I didn't even know it was there and then having seen that it can be the relinquishment of it of that particular um, experience so I found for example I just recently fairly recently um, when I was on one retreat, I had a uh, kind of mental scenario around around um, activities, feeling one should be doing something uh, or be, you know, responsible and making things work, or making sure that the monastery was good, or the sangha was in good shape, or doing something or the other like that. That feeling of that fundamental assumption that one's basically supposed to be doing something and paying one's way, deserving something, making sure things, you know, doing your bit. Um, which is a good enough idea, is an idea. But then as I was meditating I could see that it was it was much more deeply rooted than just a dispassionate idea. It was a, it was a personal need. It was a rooted need to be feel one was somehow necessary or you know fitted in or you know was 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 adequate in some way some significant in some way some minor way and then actually just seeing that and then owning up to it rather than sort of justifying it or blaming oneself just and checking it and then the recognition of you know it's not true 
because if you never existed or you don't exist or you drop dead tomorrow the world would trot along quite merrily in its own way so then what's the personal need rather than the need of an external situation and it comes through a lack of 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 real um, enjoyment of the mind real opening up to and experience of the here and now so then seeing that and take then that particular attitude could be relinquished as a personal need something that one fretted around there's a kind of unconscious fretting or restlessness around that could be relinquished so it can be seen in either say examples in which one may find these terms and ideas useful the Buddha said that this is the whole of the eightfold path should be cultivated this way so for, in other words for the path to the fruition of the path towards complete uh, enlightenment, freedom, liberation we cultivate it this way we cultivate these factors viveka, viraga Vodsaga. The factors of enlightenment should be cultivated this way, he said. And when we look in terms of a particular meditation technique or practice, then you can see it very closely relates to what is described in the way of Anapanasati and the way the enlightenment factors are developed through Anapanasati. So the, the fourth tetrad of Anapanasati is a continuing, is this kind of refrain, the nichang or the experience of that comes through when you when you when you when we step back, and get things in perspective, we see things as relative, as changing. Or viraga, we become cool about that, about the what we're witnessing, no longer uh, flustered by it, confused by it dispassionate we're able to work with it rather than feeling horrified or guilty or something like that we're able to work with it accurately as a phenomenon because of that sense of, of dispassion we can, we're able to see the causes and stop and then we can relinquish the causes that give rise to that the underlying traits or tendencies give rise to that so when this is referred to a meditation practice then you <coughs> of course um, Anapanasati Sutta mostly talks about um, the mind mm-hmm. it's meditation on the breath but it's the first the first section really is, is actually meditation on the breath so that we can eliminate the power the fundamental power of the five hindrances so we can see that uh, being able to sustain attention on the breath is one way of expressing 
that particular stage. But how, when you do sustain attention on the on the breath and you are with it completely, then notice. Well, is it, obviously you're not saturated with your will, crave, sense, desire, doubt, restlessness, and worry, or dullness, because they would they would put pay to any to all of that, wouldn't they? So it's just that sense of of making the ground clear enough of the immediate and the, and the grossest effects of karma and the grossest appetites for further karma is what the, the, the first section is about with just getting attention to sit and establish upon the breath to the point when it actually uh, is unified into the process of breathing so your awareness and the breathing are just like uh, light and shadow they are together they're not really separate and there's a feeling of, of, of uh, vitality, brightness and ease because of that the tugging, pulling and fret- frittering and, fret- and fraying <coughs> and subsequently the second deals with the say the volitional elements within the citta so we're actually able then to see the effect of uh, say the perception of the breath the feelings of the breath uh, how they affect us so you get a, you know, when the mind is one pointed you experience a sense of brightness and uh, flowing and uh, say you might get particular signs such as uh, silence or sound or lights or some kind of, you know, something of that nature, or you maybe feel you're in a large dark space, or the breath may seem to be something that's throbbing or pulsing or like light, you know, or whatever. You get that, and then the the, the mind is is uh, stimulated by that, and then this can be something that's 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 acknowledged, seen. So we, we rather than get caught up in it, then it's seen it with, with some detachment. And it's this. And then dispassion, cooling it down. And then to not be activated by it. In other words, that we're not getting... Uh, so you stop the, the interest in it, the belief in it. If you don't stop the belief in it, then what tends to happen is we're actually searching for kind of special effects or or um, you know paranormal phenomena or some kind of rapturous state so that's stopped and then relinquished we see that this is not the path and one of the values of this is that you you can reckon you can begin to have the realization experience of the mind as distinct from what it carries, if you like. So, instead of the, you see the mind, then you actually have to experience what is conceptually obvious. The mind, the citta, in a way, its its nature is is to is to know, to to feel to uh, be aware, to be sensitive, to receive something, to receive an impression. That's its nature. 
And uh, ordinarily, of course, it's not just receiving impressions, it's got its own blueprints of what those impressions should be. So there's a whole tremendous turmoil of uh, the jitta with its own agenda and sensory input with its particular qualities kind of coming in, this kind of curdling impression so that it's always flickering and darting. Now, when you actually you train the, the mind so that it's this, you know, it's actually going to stay with what's coming in, and you've made what's coming in specific and clear and wholesome, then all this turmoil, ifing and wanting and shoulding and looking and seeking and, and resisting dies down. Uh, and so the mind is then quite calm, and it begins to lose its uh, its agendas. You you can see the mind as as that. Uh, more something that's more level, steady. As the, you see the, the knowingness of it, you know, actually experience the feeling, or if you like, call it a feeling, but that experience of just awareness, of watching, witnessing. What are you witnessing? You're witnessing based upon, based upon just this experience of the the breath or the energy of the breath. Mm within that and the attentiveness to it and one-pointedness towards that. And in this particular aspect of anapanasati, uh, it's knowing the mind, knowing actually the mind is distinct from mind objects or mind patterns. And then gladdening or now cheering, uplifting that and then steadying it, stabilizing it, making it holding it together if you like, making it so it's 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 steady it's steady and then releasing. So this is this whole section is about releasing the mind from what? We've already found that uh, we've got some way of stopping and relinquishing the uh, mind objects what's there to be released from anyway of course the results if you can if you can imagine the, the jitta to be say you, you, you use the analogy of your of a hand or maybe even a shoe that might be useful something that contains something and the foot that wears that shoe is going to make an impression on it, isn't it? Gradually it moulds it into shape. If you hold something in your hand, then what you hold in your hand may very well affect that particular hand. Like if it's sticky, or if it's dirty, or if it's uh, hot, or if it's cold, or whatever it is. If it's heavy, or if it's light. It has some effect upon the, that way the hand is. When you've taken the object away, it's, it's got the, retains the impression of that. Same as if you take a foot out of the shoe and you've worn that shoe for years, the shoe will have the particular imprint of the foot that's been in it, how it's been treated. And similarly, the mind still retains the impression of, of its perceptions and its activities. So the gladdening is like a kind of, it's just going to mind itself and, and refreshing it. So it's like pulling out <coughs> the effects of that. Uh, just as one might very well kind of straighten out the blankets on a bed that you've been sleeping on 
and you actually pull out the impressions that have been left there. So the mind, if you like, or you could, uh, you know, blow air into something to kind of pulley inflate so that crinkles would disappear. So you kind of gladden it like that by basically by focusing on the quality of knowing itself and just bringing to bear this. Uh, the the sense of appreciation of enjoyment of that stilling the, the hunger for formations and then steadying actually ma- managing to maintain that so this this is a way in which uh, the mind is then released from the results and the patterns that sooner or later will reoccur if we don't actually do this <laughs> So very often what uh, happens, maybe people don't even fully explore, they'll find they can actually get to this point where they're able to put down some of the mental objects. But if you like, on a more, perhaps a less perfected way, you may have done a meditation retreat, and your 10-day retreat, two-week retreat, three-month retreat, however long it was, you know, and you got into a particular mind state, and you kind of got rid of a lot of stuff, you're not thinking about this, and you're not tetchy and grumpy anymore, and you you know all this, and it's feeling pretty good and expansive, well wishing for all beings, and you go home, and then in two days you're having a screaming row with somebody, <laughs> because, you know, the, the, the old habits come back, one, hasn't, one may have cleaned it out, but we haven't actually removed the imprint, so you find yourself going back to old psychological models again, old behaviour patterns again, old ways in which perception is, is comes up, and it comes up often clearer and sharper than it did before. And this is one of the uh, ghastly things about meditation, one of the many ghastly things about meditation, actually, <laughs> is how quickly all, all that lovely serenity just goes down the drain and how, with increasing lucidity, the, the horrifying patterns of one's delusion come back with even crisper, uh, more crisply defined than ever before. Um, because some of, you know, the, the distractedness has gone. Now you can get around to real full-blooded delusion without any <laughs> wavering. <laughs> instantaneous, high-octane... It's hard to wonder why, why is this all happening? You know, three days ago I was feeling good, and then some little thing, you know, suddenly touched you off, and the tremendous um, whole karmic uh, scenario just boom blew right up, you know, out of nowhere. Because one main fact of of free the mind from that the the, the ongoing occurrence, but we haven't re- freed it from the basic tendency to do that. It's going to be that. We haven't really freed it. We've kind of we've stopped it, but not freed it. So that in this process, then if one is cultivating both stopping and then maintaining, you know, staying with it and reviewing, you see, not just the disappearance of things, but what were they based on in the first place. Mm-hmm. 
what is one's uh, relationship with perception and feeling, any perception and feeling. So some of the unwholesome ones may have kind of gone down, but as long as one actually believes in perception and feeling, then all the circumstances then to rise upon are right there. And it doesn't take, and they actually arise much more quickly when they've got a nice clean slate without having to work through any other kind of bleary sludge that, that can smear the mind. So you can get some dynamic uh, manifestations of defilement uh, after an assiduous period of retreat, as you're probably finding it, and we'll probably find out even greater clarity when this one ends. <laughs> Because the belief in perception and feeling is still strong. Mm. So if one is relinquishing, you just, just stop, but also seeing, you know, what was the the uh, fascination based upon? What was the intoxication based upon? What was the ill will based upon? I mean, one's glad it's not here, but examine what was it? Where did it come from? Mm. Can that be relinquished? Actually, um, this is extremely um, difficult because mm. there's so much, so much inherent karma you know, uh, based upon that experience of of mental content. We get used to it. It seems to be comfy with it. It seems that who we are is a furnished room. We don't want the furniture to disappear. It feels kind of lonely and weird and creepy and not mine. So it's something that has to be sort of steadily encouraged and you realise that uh, in the long run, the more one's able to shift one's furniture out, in all senses of the word, then we're going to get more used to not being ourselves, not being so highly defined, not having so many strong opinions, not having so much special personal qualities, and you get more, this is better, you get used to it, this is better. The renunciation principle is of course uh, if you like, a uh, conventional echo of what relinquishment or saga is about and how it backs it up and how it means that we have learnt conceptually and we've learnt some know-how based upon some uh, realisations. So these will then help to train the citta, make it occur in a more advantaged light less encumbered, less thirsty less less able to pick things up Mm. less interested in picking them up feeling more secure without things so we see how the meditation practice and uh, conventions that we back it up with circle around each other reinforce each other 
justify and complement each other. So someone who is able to cultivate uh, this uh, sense of uh, clarity of mind, of knowing mind, of being able to, to be with an empty mind, is someone who experiences the mind, jitta, in its um, <coughs> highest state, equanimous, stable, peaceful. And the Buddha said, this is the best kind of clinging. And to, to stay with this, it means that uh, ensures rebirth in uh, one of these Brahmaloka, one of these places of, of uh, imperturbable tranquility. Which is not to be sniffed at, I would say. But just to separate that from the experience of Nibbana is, is helpful, at least if one gets it conceptually. You know, why, why the conceptual knowledge is helpful. Because I think that without that, that would seem pretty near, pretty good enough. You know, imperturbable sounds equanimous, spacious, sounds pretty good to me. You know, sounds a, a lot better than what I was doing 20 years ago. Sounds like this is the end, you know. So one might very well just uh, feel that, that that was it. And um, the Buddha said, reckoned that why he gave these teachings was that one that if one did find this kind of cultivation maturing, then it would be unfortunate if one didn't at least have the encouragement to to take it further. And looked at in practical terms, now the mind is bent upon itself. Now the jitta is examining intent upon itself. Because it's intent upon itself, it still has intention. Therefore it still has karma. Therefore it still has birth. Now can this very intention, intent, be seen? Can it be something we can actually can be seen something that we're not we're not uh, we're dispassionate about mm. seeing this too is something that's come around through a particular series of actions cultivations skillful cultivations it's something that's been brought around it's been made up it's come through cause and effect therefore it breaks up and it goes no further. So, in terms of stopping, stopping of the fascination with that. Because, of course, delight is the root of clinging. And belief and delight go together. And self and belief and delight and clinging are all in a circle. So when we feel this to be what we are, then it needs to be that sense of this is mind. This is mind doing this. Now it's intent upon itself. 
and uh, the cultivation of relinquishment there uh, the stopping of further engagement with that the stopping of belief in it the stopping of the of um, the kind of energy going into that and the relinquishment gives the, gives the highest fruit So in this way, the Buddha described the kind of complete, complete thing to perhaps to stages which we can only just vaguely understand intellectually. But because Dhamma is is uh, hologram, and this was given part of its uh, skill and strength, is that. And the jitta also is a hologram. In other words, what you do in the microcosm and the macrocosm are images of each other. The kind of suffering you experience through uh, being hit over the head with an iron bar is exactly the same sort of suffering you experience as not being able to open the office door. You know, it may be a different, but actually the feeling of, of hurtness or somebody just saying a word to you or apparently trivial thing. The actual quality of suffering, you know, it's like it's like a, it has this hologram, holographic quality that any aspect of it is exactly the same as on a on a larger scale, on a more life-threatening scale than than a, a minor thing. And jitter is the same when you're looking in terms of jitter. It's not a, it's not a rational process, so we can find ourselves obsessed over a candle or a, a sound, or a thought, or a silly memory, or how to smell oxymoron, or something like that, you know, could be as just as obsessive as murder, violence, horror. You can be just as glued by something totally pathetic as something uh, seemingly more significant. So the, the irrash- irrationality of it is what gives it its kind of its I'm using this word holographic quality. You see in in minute in any kind of minute thing exactly the same patterns of obsessions, of fear, of doubt, of hesitation. And you see this in the way that the hindrances occur. They can occur on a coarse level over a particular sensory impingement, and you cut down the sensory impingement and they occur on a finer level. To the point where there's just uh, you see that when the mind is quite fine, the way the hindrances occur is just like the, the subtle feeling of this can't am I is this is this doubt or the, the kind of quality of hunger for something or a sort of indifference dulling out <coughs> or a kind of ad, you know agitated wavering. And you can recognize these trace, trace qualities of um, the hindrances, even when the mind is removed from thought, removed from external sense impingement, on quite a refined level, you still feel the subtle effects of these things, just, just nibbling and dampening the brightness of mind. So in some way, when you say you remove the hindrances, you remove them in their coarse aspect. 
just by the quality of suppressive quality of samadhi. But in their in their refined aspect, the hologram still remains the same. And this is why, of course, samadhi itself can't do, can't eliminate, because it, it doesn't it doesn't actually all it does is it suppresses and moulds and changes shapes, but it doesn't actually eliminate the the fundamental programming. You know, one can relinquish it, one can stop it, one can check it, but one doesn't actually eliminate thoroughly. Um, so we can say that often we, you know, it may be the case that someone who has very strong samadhi still finds himself kind of at this level of the very quality of the samadhi itself, that the intending, the will to to develop that remain becomes the obstacle because you can't let go of the will to focus on something. You know, the mind is still intent upon itself, so therefore experiences the same kind of suffering as if somebody hit you over the head with an iron bar. You could think, how could, you know, you can still suffer a lot at that, at that, at that point. Frustration, you know, despair, this kind of thing. But then, looking on the positive side, and where the Dharma practice is so therapeutic is that we can also affect what seems to be only related to very fine levels of consciousness. We can affect them by activities on a very mundane level of consciousness. You train the jitta in this way so that the the know-how is related very much to training, training this mind. And this is something we we can do on a kind of on a mundane level. Train yourself in detachment in terms of attitude, in terms of requisites. Train oneself in dispassion in terms of events and circumstances and people and things. Train oneself in stopping in terms of non proliferation, checking. Not getting caught up, train oneself in relinquishment in terms of giving, serving, letting go, developing these things. Because that patterning, that process of Dhamma, if it's sustained at any level, becomes the process which the jitta then learns in its own, and that hologram of Dhamma is then carried through. So you can't really do this just through battering away at a technique without a context, without a lifestyle, without a way of living to back it up. This is why the Buddha taught the whole thing. And so much of the Buddhist uh, Buddha's teachings are about sila, about conventions, or the vinaya is about that, the training for the summoners, training for the lay people. I would say that there's much more of that in terms of volume and the number of times the Buddha taught it than there is about dealing with 
kind of refined levels of of um, of attachment, which you know, mentioned here and there, but comparatively speaking, much less so. Because, uh, in a way, if you haven't done that, if you haven't steeped yourself in that whole way of living, you can't, you're not going to do it at a refined level. There's no much point in talking about it, really. It's another set of ideas, but unless one is actually steeped one's mind in that whole way of approaching life, then you're not going to do it. And if you have steeped your mind in it, not just your thinking mind, but your whole way of being, your whole self, jitter yourself into it, then this is, and you have faith in that, and you've given yourself to it, then the process of samadhi will carry that programming to its most powerful fruit, which is fruit. So in the end, it's not a matter of of know-how alone, just getting some tricks. It's not a matter of study alone. It's a matter, or just the realization of one particular point. It's a realization of the whole of the path, the realization of what is the path, and that the path, any aspect of the path, is a microcosm or hologram of the whole thing. So rather than just getting, you know, making us feel a sense of despair when even at kind of fine levels of consciousness you're still up against the, in the same problem, it actually gives one a tremendous feeling of encouragement to know that one has purpose and practice continually. Just uh, detachment, non, not holding, stepping back, not stepping away from ignoring, but just keeping things in perspective, letting things change, letting oneself be part of that change, not trusting it, recognizing it has to be this way, cooling down about the changes that we go through, highs and lows. Happy, sad, knowing, not knowing. Just, just be honest. This is phenomena. This is the process of karma. It's not something to get uptight about. <coughs> Checking, stopping the proliferations and the activities based upon uh, what one is feeling at the present moment. Just checking it, not scattering into it. Letting the mind just kind of create, create whole scenarios over it, and then relinquishment, mm. giving oneself. And these are these are beautiful cultivations. As you, as you cultivate, just kind of focusing on some of these things. Then, then the conceptual teaching gives one always gives one a kind of handhold on practice, and the practice gives you a way of developing and deepening 
realization in the present and in the future. <coughs>